Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, a very warm welcome. And if you are a regular listener, then thank you. I am so aware of how many amazing podcasts are out there and how time poor we all are. So that you choose to listen to the Motherkind podcast makes me very happy and I am endlessly grateful. So thank you. My mission with this podcast is to inspire you to reconnect back to yourself, whatever that might look like for you. Perhaps it's reconnecting with your health and self-care. Maybe it's looking at your career and your relationships, or maybe how you talk to yourself. And finally, looking at being kinder to yourself. So I talk to therapists, doctors, naturopaths, coaches, career experts, and everything in between to help you become your happiest, healthiest, and most alive version of you. Because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. So on to this week's episode. It is with Mastin Kip who is a number one best-selling author, speaker and creator of Functional Life Coaching, which is for people who are looking for really rapid transformation. So Oprah, no less, has called him a thought leader for the next generation. His latest book is called Claim Your Power, which I highly recommend, by the way. And Mastin has become known for his work around trauma, specifically unhealed emotional trauma and the impact that that has on our lives and how it blocks us from living our best lives. So that's really what I wanted to focus on in this interview. I wanted to ask Mastin what this trauma is, how we know if we have it and what we can do about it. The idea is, is that we have to start to have a construct of what emotional trauma is besides just the really overt stuff because we are all experiencing it. And just like we're finding in the world of functional medicine, you know, it's this low grade, the technical term is subclinical inflammation that's causing so many of these chronic illnesses. So we start off in the interview talking about that. And then in the second half, we talk about trauma and parenting and how we as the mothers can be profoundly affected by our own unhealed emotional trauma and what we can do to let it stop with us, to not pass that trauma down generationally. Anything that you have unresolved is going to come up for sure when you have a kid. What you can choose to do is be what we call a transitional character in your lineage. And what that means is, is that trauma is passed out generationally through behaviors and environments and genetic expression. And if you do your trauma work and you start to create secure attachments, that can stop with you. And that makes you a transitional character. I loved this episode. If you've listened to the podcast before or you know me or you've worked with me in any way, you'll know that this is a real passion of mine. And I talk about it on the 50th episode that I did with Nikki Clinch. I am absolutely fascinated by it. I'm doing my own training in it so that I can learn more and more about this and help people recover from it in the way that I have and am doing so. 
So some of what we talk about might be new to you. It might also be quite hard to hear at times. So if you do find it at all triggering or difficult to listen to, then I would encourage you just to pause the podcast, come back to it when you're ready, take what you like and leave the rest. But I do want this podcast to be somewhere where we can challenge ourselves, look beyond just the obvious surface level conversations that so often can happen about well-being and really challenge ourselves to dig a little bit deeper and that's what Mastin asks us to do he asks us to look for the root cause of what might be causing some of our habitual responses to life so he talks about a lot of resources he talks about something called attachment therapy and he gives lots of book names and doctors and psychologist names i'm going to link all of those in the show notes so that you don't have to write them down or remember them if you go to motherkind.co click on the podcast section go to this episode Mustin kip you will find links to all those resources so if this episode interested you too then please do go and look at those resources and learn more about it just one last thing for me is that i am entering motherkind for an award for a british podcast award which is really exciting but it means that i think the judges are going to look at the reviews so if you haven't left a review and you are a regular listener and you enjoy the podcast please 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 could you just pop onto itunes you'll need to log in with your apple account and leave a review i would be super grateful and i will let you know if i win anyway here is the episode i hope you enjoy it so, Mastin, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. It's so awesome to be here, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to say thank you because you have been a really, really big part of my journey since I started following you. God, I can't remember how many years ago with The Daily Love. I've seen you in London when you've been to speak with Hay House. I have been training with Dr. Shafali and you've been a guest teacher. And I adore your new body of work and your new book, Claim Your Power. So first of all, thank you. Oh, that's so awesome. And what an amazing thing that you're doing here. And, you know, the conversation around motherhood, taking care of moms and making sure they have support is like so important in the context of what we're talking about today with trauma and stuff. So, so happy to be here. Exactly. And that's what I want this next sort of 50 minutes or so of conversation to be about. So, you know, and I was preparing for this, there's so much of your knowledge and experience that I want my audience to know about. But I think the thing that I really want to share of your expertise today is around trauma, specifically unhealed emotional trauma. So let's get straight into it. What is trauma and how yeah. does someone know if they have it? What I will say is is that when we talk about the word trauma, it's a scary word for a lot of people. It's also super misunderstood. Kind of like cancer is like a scary word. But the thing to understand is it's not as scary as you might think. And also when you do this internal work and you face this stuff and you really heal this stuff, you don't pass it on to your children. You tend to earn more. You tend to you know, have a healthier body, more wellness, all kinds of things come into balance in terms of weight regulation and better sleep and less stress, uh, mental health issues improve. So there's a lot of benefits to doing this work and especially when it comes to setting the example for your children, no more important work a parent could do. And you know, Dr. Shafali is really big on that too. So that's why I think it's so important to have the conversation. In terms of what trauma is, 
there's a couple different types of trauma. There's like physical trauma, which is, you know, like when you have a cut or a gunshot wound, blunt force trauma. That's not really what we're talking about. The type of trauma we're talking about is more invisible. It's emotional trauma. Most people don't understand emotional trauma because if there's not like a physical wound, they don't think something's there. But there's a lot of things that get downregulated, dysregulated, and get out of whack when you experience emotional trauma. And the best way to think about emotional trauma is anything that threatens the safety and connection of a psychological and or emotional bond. So when there is an emotional and psychological bond that's broken, shattered, disconnected, or no longer safe or threatened, that essentially is what trauma is in the context of emotions. You can't talk about trauma with also not being able to talk about attachment and not attachment like holding a child close for two years, though that's super important, but attachment in the context of like emotional connection that we make and how we connect. The emerging field of attachment theory that John Bowlby brought forward is really just sort of creating almost like a systems model of how we view all personal development, all trauma work, because trauma is a disconnection in that healthy attachment between humans in relationship. And so attachment theory is really the theory of emotional regulation or the theory of how to heal your trauma. And it's a really powerful thing. And I'm so in love with it. Even though I'm not like a licensed mental health professional, I did create a trauma-informed, attachment-informed coaching protocol after 10,000 hours of working with people. So while I don't have the license, I have the data and the results. And so I feel competent enough to talk about these types of things. But in a nutshell, that's kind of who I am and also what trauma is and how we can kind of define it for our conversation today. Yeah, and I think that's so important what you said about we're not talking here about attachment parenting, which is about, you know, those early years and how we manage those physical bonds. What we're talking here about is emotional attachment. And I think that's really, really important to get into. So I guess you didn't come to this work as a casual observer. What was your experience? What's your trauma? What are you recovering from? And how has that helped inform the work and the way that you approach this today? The people who do this type of work, therapists, coaches, anybody who's seeking the light and doing this type of work typically has you know something in their past, which is what draw them to this work. So for me, it wasn't something overt like an abuse and it wasn't something malicious either. My father was in the Vietnam War. He was a combat medic and a helicopter medic for up to three years and he was – in the middle of the worst imaginable human scenarios, seeing some of the worst things you could see consistently and return from the Vietnam War with PTSD, which he didn't address because no one knew how to in the 70s. But then my mom grew up in a place of emotional and physical abuse in her household. And when she was 15, broke her back riding horses and then was in chronic pain the rest of her life. The doctors told her not to have me. It would make her back worse. And then she did. And you know she was bedridden for the first 10 or 12 years of my life in and out of operations, died three times. And so in my childhood, it wasn't this like overt type of abuse. It was just more like this unintentional neglect because my father had PTSD and my mom was wounded. So all the focus went on her and taking care of her for the most part. And so for me, it was this disconnection emotionally. And that doesn't sound so bad when you think about in the context of abuse and things like that, but disconnection is disconnection. I never learned limits. I never learned boundaries. I became very defiant as I grew up and went to Los Angeles. And that was even more traumatizing, working in the music business and doing the drugs and codependent relationships and all that stuff. And you started your recovery in 12 steps, didn't you? I've been in and out of the rooms, you know, for sure. SLAA has been a lifesaver for me. 
It was never the sex that was a problem. It was always the love, you know, the connection, which is all the attachment stuff. The 12 steps have definitely been an influence for me, but there's been a lot of other things that have been an influence. I think the 12 step model is awesome, and there's a lot more to it than just the 12 steps, but it's awesome. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about this idea of trauma not necessarily being about overt abuse because I think that's what a lot of people link it to isn't it well I'm not traumatized because I wasn't abused I had two parents who loved me yeah so basically when you think about trauma and how do you know you have it if you have anxiety depression personality disorders bipolar ADHD if you have procrastination, if you have perfectionism, if you have a hard time following through, if you're really disorganized, if you have OCD, like all of these things are sort of like byproducts of trauma. If you have like ongoing toxic relationships, if you have gone through a separation or a divorce or have lost somebody, all those things are traumatizing. The idea is, is that we have to start to have a construct of what emotional trauma is besides just the really overt stuff because we are all experiencing it. And just like we're finding in the world of functional medicine, you know, it's this low-grade – the technical term is subclinical inflammation that's causing so many of these chronic illnesses. And it's the low-grade subclinical emotional trauma that is before that because we have these low-level traumas emotionally and then we get into all this coping behavior and that produces all kinds of other problems. So it's really what comes first, the chronic disease or the trauma, and it's like mostly the trauma. Fascinating, fascinating. And I love the way that you talk about replacing anxiety disorder, depression disorder with response. Can you explain a bit about what you mean by that? So yes. anxiety response. When you get into the literature and the cutting-edge research that's being done in the field of mental health and the emotional trauma field and disorders and mental health disorders. What you find is there's a wide variety of proven, substantiated clinical data that very clearly shows that the emotional disruptions that we experience are the precursors to mental health disorders. And even the term mental health is wrong because Mental health, the brain is actually a secondary organ or brain. The most important sort of quote brain that we have is our microbiome and our gut where the majority of our neurotransmitters are produced. So the brain is almost like a picture of the health of the body in many ways. When you have these traumatic experiences that are somatic, meaning they're emotional in the body, and you have your body being downregulated and dysregulated, and you have the anxiety and all these feelings in your body, all those things produce all kinds of chemical imbalances and issues in the brain. And of course, physical injury, like traumatic brain injuries and things like that, also come into play as well. You look at the food that we're taking in and the inflammation and, and all of the GMOs and stuff like that, all of those things are contributing. But what you start to see when you really start to get into the literature and then when I work with clients around their quote diagnosis, all of the diagnoses that people have that are mental health diagnoses are actually coping mechanisms that are coping with their root cause trauma. I can give you a very good example. So post-traumatic stress disorder can be recontextualized as post-traumatic. It's a whole body response to this traumatic stress that you went through in this acute manner typically when there was like combat or whatever it might be. When you look at someone who has schizophrenia, schizophrenia is there in these multiple personalities because 
the human nervous system is so creative, they create multiple personalities to dissociate from the pain that they're going through. So the further you get into the research and literature, you start to realize that this disorder terminology was good for the 70s and the 80s and the DSM-1, 2, 3, and 4. But with DSM-5, which is where these diagnoses are coming from, the evidence has been submitted, but it's been rejected. You know, We won't be selling as many pharmaceuticals drugs contributes to all kinds of profit centers that are keeping people unwell. So it's a very obvious thing for people who are paying attention. And there is so much clinical data to back this type of stuff up now. It's ridiculous. And so what I decided to do was start a coaching company around this topic because I'm not licensed. I don't need to be. I don't charge insurance. I have full disclosure about what I don't have in terms of licensure. And people come to us and they get the results because what we're focused on is making the person, the individual, the primary stakeholder in this model of healthcare. Because the system isn't doing it, I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And it's been a really fun process so far. And we've got some amazing people on our team now who are mental health advocates, mental health practitioners. I call them rebel practitioners because they have their degrees and certifications, but they want more. And so we're kind of trying to build this like rebel practitioner company and model where we're taking the things that are most important about the current model and then adding in the things that are really not, quote, accepted by the status quo, even though all the cutting edge research is showing that it's very clearly all about attachment and all about healing the emotional wounds. That's sort of the most concise and brief answer I could give you about that. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like nodding along. So I guess for people listening, the mums might be falling into two camps right now. They might be half thinking, this is me. I have anxiety. I want to get to the root cause of this, which is what you're talking about. I want to go back to the original incidents, as you would call them, and I want to heal this. We're going to talk about how people might approach that. I suspect there might be another group who are thinking, I'm on antidepressants or I'm on anti-anxiety or some form of medication. So much fear is coming up for me right now, thinking about going into the root cause of this. I'm too afraid to do that. Is that what you find, that sometimes a fear can come up around this idea of really peeling back those layers to the core of these emotional traumas? And how do you help people overcome that fear? If you're going to ever come off medication, you've got to do it medically with someone who knows what they're doing. I put my mom into a rehab to come off a medication that was in a medical center and supervised because if you're going to do that, it's a medical process and you have to make sure you get medical advice. So I'm not going to give medical advice in terms of should someone come off or how should they come off. But what I can say is that when you start to address these types of issues and then you start to improve your relationships, you improve your environment, you improve your lifestyle and you start to understand why your anxiety is there or why your depression is there and how it served you and how it has a purpose and how now you're safe to do it differently over time, what's very interesting is we've seen lots of clients who decide to not take their stuff anymore, who come off those things. And the other thing is, is that, you know, having these conversations about what the root is, yeah, it's scary, but the more that people do it, And the more that they get through it and the more case studies we publish and the more outcomes that we create and the benefit and the outcome of it is so much better when they start to realize it's actually scarier not to address it. That's what we're really starting to see is that, you know, we get a lot of people who are ready and you do your trauma work, you do your emotional work in your time. Like there's no right time to do it, but there is absolutely people and practitioners out there who are able to do this. The functional coaching space is the type of coaching I created. 
and we're working on being able to expand that because we've had so many people inquire about our work, which is awesome. So if you can't get work with me directly, which would be awesome, but if you can't, you know, getting like an attachment therapist who does attachment work is the next best thing. And diving into this work is something that will prove to be beneficial, especially if you have a child, because if you have trauma, you're passing down your behavioral patterns, your avoidant patterns, your anxiety patterns, your disorganized patterns. You're passing down strategies to stay in anxiety or to stay in avoidance to your child. And you don't want that because they feed off of you and not what you say, but what you do. So when you link it to setting the example for your child too, a lot of that fear tends to you know wash away. Yeah. And I found that as well with the mothers that I work with, you know, I think motherhood is a natural time for introspection. And I think it's a natural time to want to heal a lot of this core stuff. I've really found that in the people that I work with. So for the people who are listening to you now and are feeling those sort of butterflies of excitement, knowing that this type of work is out there and possible, let's get into a bit more of the meat of it. So you talk about trauma hacking in terms of looking at mind, body and spirit. Can you break down for people a bit about how you overcome a lot of these habitual responses to life. How do you take someone from highly anxious to living with purpose and peace? (laughs) It's a process. There's no magic bullet. But what I can say is that what we do is we really look at like what happened to you and what did you make that mean and what did others around you make that mean? What did you hide away? What did you not disclose? What did you learn to push down? How did you cope Because trauma isn't just about what happened to you. Mostly it's about what happens afterwards and how people respond. Because it's one thing to go through something hard, but it's another thing to have to hold it in isolation for 30 years. We really look at like, okay, so what's your history and how did you hold whatever you went through? Were you able to share it? Was there isolation? Were you disbelieved? And we look at how all of their history adds up to essentially make perfect sense why they're behaving the way they are today. And then we help them start to understand that it's safe to start to change those behaviors. It's safe to start to bring out those parts of themselves that have maybe been shut away for a while. And then it's a process of like neural exercises where, you know, you might have the knowledge in your brain, but the body needs the proof. So then it's about getting into life and actually implementing and creating safer relationships and using your voice and speaking up and taking those risks. And over a period of time, you absolutely can retrain your body. We know about that now because of the concepts of neuroplasticity. It's a process. But the best part about the trauma hacking experience is that you start to realize like, hey, you know what? My responses make a whole heck of a lot of sense. I'm not crazy actually at all. I'm a brilliant, creative genius who got through a lot of hard stuff. And now I'm going to feel safe to change. So each path is personalized. There isn't like a one-size-fits-all model. But the one thing I know for sure is that every behavior in the right context and the right history and the right understanding makes sense. And so we help find that sort of equation, if you will, and then we help them change it and feel safe to move forward into being more vulnerable, earning more, or you know, releasing the weight or whatever it might be. But the psychological and emotional safety component is so, so, so vital. Can you give an example just to really add color to that, either from your own recovery of this stuff or a particular client, maybe a mother, of the type of trauma that someone might go through and the responses to that? I can give you like a really extreme example that will, I think, demonstrate the idea. So we had a client once who was a mom, and before she started working with us, she had just gone off food stamps. And she really wanted to start earning in her business. 
And so we went through this process and she had been through some significant traumatizing events that were abusive and really hard. And what we found is that she wasn't putting herself out there in her business because her nervous system on an unconscious level means she wasn't aware of it. She was scared of that happening again. If she was visible, if she posted on Instagram, if she went live on Facebook. Not only that, she was scared that it would happen to her children on an unconscious level. She wasn't consciously thinking about this all day long, but it was like something that her unconscious had put together to keep everybody safe. So her unconscious belief was, hey, I can't put myself out there and be seen because if I am, then I'm going to get hurt. But it's not just going to be me. It's going to be my kids. So literally no webinar strategy, no sales strategy, no social media strategy would work if that's what you're up against. Like there's just no way because like a mother's drive to protect her child is as primal as it gets. So there's no reframing that's going to get it there. When we helped her understand that A, that's the past and B, the people who hurt her are still hurting her because she's not stepping into her business and they're actually – in the moment hurting her children because she's modeling food stamps, not abundance, and that the best way to get revenge, the best way to get back at them, the best way to be safe, the best way to take care of her children would be to earn a lot. So there was a major paradigm shift in that unconscious belief. All of a sudden, you know, within two or three months, she was doing $50,000 months, like legit. And it was amazing to see that process. And then the part about it is is that it's not like you're just done. Like there needs to be a container of support on an ongoing basis because you know you can have these like momentary breakthroughs, but to create a whole new neural pathway and consistency takes time and it takes like a new lifestyle. So whenever you have a new habit that's going well, the old habit is one bad day away. So you want to make sure that you have consistent support and consistent co-regulation with people who are safe. Co-regulation is just face-to-face and vocal contact where you're in a community or in a mentorship or relationship, whatever that's safe, so that you're really setting yourself up to consistently have your environment restore those healthy bonds as well. But that's a really great example, an extreme example of the process in terms of how we work with people and how we help them understand like, hey, your nervous system's totally right. Makes a lot of sense based on what you went through, but it's safe to move forward now. So you want to go there? And it's a very effective process because I don't pathologize people. I have a deep respect for the human body's response. The body's been around for a long time. You know, it's a pretty smart thing. So you can't just sit around talking about what's wrong. You have to also ask, like, why would this make sense? And when you get to that place, you can do a lot of awesome things that weren't possible before. I love that example. And I love what you talk about, you know, to stop coaches and me included, you know, I've stopped talking about this, stop talking about limiting beliefs and start talking about coping tools. What did you do to cope with what you were given? So it's clear that her subconscious was coping with that trauma, although the overt response was holding her back, wasn't it? So I think that's so important as well for people to understand that idea of we're all just trying to survive, aren't we? Yeah, and it's unconscious, meaning like we're not even aware of it. It's blind spots. You know, I'm not against coaches and people who do work that's not trauma informed because I think they're helping. And my goal is in the next five years that like everyone's trauma informed. Like if you're not a trauma informed yoga teacher, if you're not a trauma informed spiritual teacher, if you're not a trauma informed coach, no one comes to you because that's old news. Because without doing the trauma piece, it's incomplete. It's like trying to use an alphabet without vowels. (laughs) It doesn't work. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I'm doing my own work, you know, 
to make sure that I'm bringing this work to my clients too. So are we all traumatized? Is it possible for people to get through childhood and adolescence without trauma? Well, I don't know if that would be a good thing or not. And I'll tell you why. Because it's kind of like saying like, is it possible for someone to have a six pack without working out, right? And the other thing is if you look at like our evolution, we were hunter-gatherers and we, you know, we would go out into the forest or into the desert or wherever and we would face danger to bring back food and then we'd bring food back to the tribe or we'd be hunting, you know, gathering for berries and all these types of things. But there was these dangerous environments that we were in. And so the data out of the attachment field is fascinating because it's only about 20% or 30% of the time if you can have like a secure attachment or a healthy and safe relationship, 20 or 30% of the time, like you're pretty good. And if you have, if you're always safe, then you're not really going to grow. So I don't think it's so much about not having trauma because trauma is disconnection, right? But I think we need to like, obviously like the physical traumas, whether it's war or abuse, like that needs to stop. But there's always going to be some type of separation. There's always going to be some type of growth that's necessary. But when you look at like the violence that's available today and that's so widespread, if you look at the values of racism and sexism, misogyny and patriarchy, these values no longer serve a purpose. I don't think that there's ever going to not be trauma, but I think it's more about, hey, we now know it's here. And because we know it's here, we know how to help heal it and how to help correct it. So it's kind of like having a cut but not having a Band-Aid. Like, now that we have a Band-Aid, like, cuts aren't that big of a deal. Oh, and by the way, stay out of the glass. You know, like, we shouldn't go over there. And as we create more of these bonds, there'll be less overt trauma, but I think that there's always going to be some level of trauma because, you know, the next level is we got to go explore space. There's going to be all kinds of trauma there. And, like, please, Elon Musk, do not go to Mars until you've healed your trauma because the last thing we need is more human suffering on a different planet. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) So what can mothers do? You know, you are clearly highly knowledgeable about trauma and attachment theory. And you said before about generational trauma. Is the best thing that mothers can do is heal their own trauma? Are there things that we should be doing for our children as well? Well, I think it's both. Absolutely. But here's the deal. And this is like, it's just true. Okay. So Freud said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Right? <laughs> and that's what Freud said. Or at least that's the joke about what he said. And when you look at attachment theory and Bowlby's work, it all goes back to mom. And here's why. Literally, your first attachment is with your mother inside her body. And then the umbilical cord. And giving birth, if you think about it, is confusing for a child because it's like, I'm one with something, but now I'm separate, but I still have this thing between us. So what's yours, mine, and ours? And that's like so natural. That's why there's like that enmeshment sometimes where like I don't know what's mine and what's yours and it's all confusing because like that's our introduction to the world. And so how the mother feels about the child, the environment that the child's born into, we now know that babies can intuit the environment that they're born into before they're born. All of those things, like the genetic expression of the mother, how healthy she is, like all of those things have a direct correlation to the health of the child. Then for the first two years of a child's life or three, a child is unable to regulate its emotional state, which means it cannot calm down. So the worst thing you can do is follow Dr. Spock's advice and let him cry because for up to two years of age, they don't have the myelinated part of their vagus nerve myelinated yet. That's the part that controls breathing, heart rate variability. It's above the diaphragm. So like you got to be in proximity because literally like the mother has to be the child's vagus nerve to calm them down. So vocal tone is so huge. Humming, 
proximity, so that attachment style parenting where like you're really close to a parent, like that physical touch is super important. What's even more important is that emotional attunement. Before the age of two, you can't verbalize. So like it's up to the mother to be able to like, what's that face? Are they this? Are they that? And that's not sexist. The female brain is literally wired to pick up nonverbal cues a million times better than the male brain. So it's not that a male couldn't do it. We're not as good at it because that's just not how we're wired. But we can learn. But the female brain is wired to be like in emotional attunement with the child. So it's not just the physical proximity that matters. It's the emotional attunement. And then if the baby cries out, every time they cry out, especially before the age of two, and their needs aren't met, that is a traumatizing experience for that child because they're getting a signal that the universe does not meet my needs. So you got to get up. You got to go be there. You got to be with the child. Don't outsource that to a nanny. Don't put them in an ICU unit or like into a little thing by themselves their first night. All of these things are so important and understand that the child literally cannot calm itself before the age of two. You got to really work on your emotional state and anything that you have unresolved is going to come up for sure when you have a kid. What you can choose to do is be what we call a transitional character in your lineage. What that means is is that trauma is passed down generationally through behaviors and environments and genetic expression. And if you do your trauma work and you start to create secure attachments, that can stop with you. And that makes you a transitional character. And what's so amazing about it is people are so proud. Maybe I'm the first woman to go to college in my family or I'm the first person from my family to go to college or I'm the first woman to run a business or I'm the first woman to out-earn my husband. All those things are amazing. But if you could be the first woman in your lineage to heal the trauma, oh my God, what an accomplishment that would be. And the other thing I would say real quickly is that Bessel van der Kolk was one of my favorite trauma experts, Dr. van der Kolk, very knowledgeable about these things. Uh, He said something that really touched me, which is if we want to end trauma and really move a dial in the right direction, the most important thing that we can do is to help single mothers raise their children securely. <laughs> That's like the most important thing we can do because all the responsibilities that a mother has of like being there and then also earning, it's not that she can't do that, but that emotional proximity is so, so, so vital for the health of a child. And so helping single moms raise secure kids is like probably one of the most important things we can do. That emotional attunement, that emotional presence to the child, that call and response, that responsiveness is so, so, so vital. And being there when they cry out is so huge. And if that stuff triggering you, which it probably is, that's a real sign for you to go in and do your own stuff too. So much I want to pick up on. First of all, is that, you know, I am that transitional character in my family. That's the thing that I'm proud of awesome. in, in my whole life. You know, generational trauma down the female line is our family's story. And I'm doing everything in my ability to heal it so that I don't pass it to my daughter. But I hadn't heard that phrase around it. So thank you for naming that. That's really helpful to me. I think I really, really pleased when you talked about the mothers being triggered because I want to get into this a little bit because my fear is that some people listening might be experiencing some guilt with what you're saying. If they have allowed their child to cry out or they have outsourced elements of that childcare through their, either through how triggering it is or through other needs, what would you say to someone who is experiencing those feelings of guilt about that now? And what does someone do who is so overtly triggered by their own child pain because theirs is unresolved? How do we do the two at the same time? I don't think it's possible to be an emotionally attuned mother with unresolved trauma. But when you're in the thick of it and it's 2 a.m., what can someone do? Is there anything in the moment? It's a great question. So 
another thing to understand about human beings, which is true mother to child and certainly in romantic relationships, is that there's this concept called neuroception. And what that means is neuroception is just the perception of your nervous system primarily below your head. All the nerves, all the organs below your body are all like threat detection machines and they're all sending you signals up the vagus nerve into your brain. When you're feeling anxiety or when you're feeling this type of stress, that is typically triggers in the body that the brain is detecting and that's called neuroception. And the thing about neuroception is, is that it changes your vocal tone without you knowing it. It changes your facial expression without you knowing it because the trigger happens before you're aware of it. So anyone who wishes to not get triggered is – never going to be happy because the trigger is going to happen. The first thing to understand is you will get triggered. Even like the most untraumatized person who's done all their work still has emotional triggers because we're human. So it's not about not getting triggered. It's about what do you do when you notice it and how you notice it, right? And the thing about secure attachment and relationship, and siblings know this. I didn't know this because I was an only child. It took me a long time to figure this out. Love is built in the repair, and relationships and safety are built in the repair process. So just like when you're like lifting weights and you go to the gym and you're lifting a weight and you build muscle, the muscle isn't built in the gym. You rip the muscle apart and create microtrauma. And then when you're sleeping, the muscle is built during the repair process. Relationships are the exact same way. So it's not so much about not getting upset or not having being triggered. It's more about like, do you have a repair strategy? And that is the most important thing, to have a repair strategy, because the repair is the most important piece of creating these healthy bonds. And then the other thing I would say is literally one of the most powerful tools for regulating the nervous system and and really getting into a better vagal state, which is the vagus nerve is the nerve that essentially is controlling how much anxiety you feel or peace you feel, is to make your exhales longer than your inhales. So if 80% of your breath can be an exhale, it's going to be very hard to have that anxiety feeling because you can't exhale and feel anxious at the same time. It doesn't really work that way. And it activates what's called the vagal break. And so literally, you could take 30-second breaths where you have an inhale for like six seconds and then 24 seconds exhale. You just slowly exhale. And then also, especially if you're with a child who's young, humming is a great way to regulate your vagus nerve and to calm yourself down. And it's also very, very calming for a child. So when you you know, kind of have a mom who's holding a baby close and then she kind of intuitively is just kind of humming something and maybe moving the child, all of those things are instinctual regulation behavior. So you can do that for yourself too. So it's really about regulating yourself. So you don't have to resolve everything, just slow exhales, some humming, forgiving yourself for realizing that you got triggered because your nervous system responded before you could do anything about it. And then having some repair strategies can be a really powerful concoction for creating secure attachments because everybody gets triggered. (laughs) It's how you repair that matters. I totally agree. I've done a lot of work and I get triggered daily. (laughs) And when you talk about repair, do you mean in terms of, especially in a child pre two who's nonverbal, is that repairing through emotional energy and emotional availability or are we using words? What does that repair actually look like in that relationship? All mammals respond to facial expression and tone. You could go to a dog. I figured this out when I was a young kid. I thought it was funny at first, you know? Like, you go to a dog and you can have the nicest tone. You could say, Oh my God, hi, sweetie. You're like such a stupid dog. Oh my God, look how stupid you are wagging your tail, right? 
and they're all wagging their tail and happy and stuff. And then you can change your tone and you can say, I love you, you dog. And then they kind of frown, right? Because they're not listening to your words. They're paying attention to your tone and your face. And tone and face are two of the most powerful tools an individual has to create safety in a relationship because it's all about how you say it. Everybody who has a partner knows there's a certain tone that when that person has that tone, you don't want to be around them. (laughs) (laughs) And there are certain faces that you know mean, oh my God, I got to get out of here, right? Like that's a danger. And so the way that you repair with a child is, and with any human, is in proximity. And then it's about really regulating your tone. So it's a safer tone and safer facial expressions. And you can you know, talk to them too because they pick that stuff up as well. Being able to apologize, being able to empathize, and being able to align with someone's experience without necessarily agreeing with it is so powerful so that you can actually understand where someone's coming from without having to agree that that's how it is. Tone is everything, right? And also in a partnership, being able to allow the repair to happen instead of saying, well, you were a jerk, so I'm not going to repair. You know, it's like, no, like you want the repair to happen. There's lots of ways to do it. But if you do it with a safe tone and a safe face, a lot more things are possible. I love this because this is really what I think my audience are going to take from this is that we are all human. We are all imperfect. In some way, it's inevitable that we're going to pass some of that on to our children. But really, the key to this is being aware of it and then repairing it is the best of our ability. That's all we can do, right? 100%. And the repair process is where the healing happens. I'm so passionate about this because, you know, and I do this with my, she's only three, but I do this a lot with my little girl, which is saying I own up really quickly to where I got it wrong. And I show her that I love myself, even though I'm deeply imperfect, because that's what I want for her. I want her to not see me berating myself for not getting it right, because that's the modeling that I got. I don't want to repeat that. So I think that's a really, really important message around this, which is that there's a certain inevitability around it, but that's okay. As you say, we can build the love and the secure attachment and the safety in how we amend for that behavior or how we repair it. That's right. Is there something that you think it's really important for them to know that we haven't already talked about on this subject? You mentioned it a little bit just now and kind of talking about the idea of, you know, I am imperfect and I don't want my child to think, you know, all that stuff. And, and that's such a good mindset. And I want to talk about this idea of perfection for a second, because what you don't want to do is take this brand new information that you're learning and beat yourself up for why you're not good enough, first of all. Second of all, the desire for reaching perfection you know, is sort of synonymous with this idea of imposter syndrome, where either I feel like a fraud or nothing I do is ever kind of good enough and I don't feel like I'm good enough. That kind of goes with like this sort of wording around like low self-worth, and people are like, I want to feel worthy. When you look at things like that from the sort of attachment trauma perspective, what is worthiness, right? Worthiness is, if you break it down, stems from this idea that if I cry out, if I'm vulnerable, will my needs get met? Can I count on someone to be there if I'm vulnerable? And when someone doesn't feel, quote, worthy or they don't feel enough or they didn't get it perfect, the signal that they got when they were younger is that that behavior won't create connection. And so they learn that you know having a need, being emotional, makes them, quote, unworthy, but it's really that they don't get that connection, that safety. And so the most important thing that you can do for a child is to understand that their worth comes from their experience of crying out and having their needs met. Now, I'm not saying that that means that you have to 
cater to their every needs because one of the other important things to create safety is limit setting. You have to be able to set limits. But this idea of worth comes from how trained is my nervous system that if I flub or miss it or don't quite get it right or if I'm vulnerable and expose a part of myself that's scared, how much of my nervous system believes that someone will be there for me? And that's really what self-worth is, is this feeling of safety around vulnerability. The way to do that is to create safety in relationships that are based in vulnerability. But that can only happen when you've done your trauma work. So don't beat yourself up when you hear this stuff and try to get it perfect because that's just going to create more of that pattern and your child is going to model that. You know, Brene Brown talks a lot about vulnerability. Vulnerability is only possible in safe relationships. Vulnerability is only possible when you start to believe on a nervous system level, you, you feel and you have evidence that when you share vulnerably that someone is, can actually be counted on. So I think the most important thing is to be someone that you can count on for yourself and then to focus on having relationships in your life that you can count on and make sure your child can count on you no matter how they show up because the perfection imperfection is really from a trauma perspective about what is my nervous system's expectation that if I am vulnerable, my needs will get met. And so the more that you can send safe signals during those moments of vulnerability or flubs, the better. And the best way to do that is starting with yourself. Yeah. And I've really noticed that as well. And, you know, the more and more healing work that I've done, the the way higher tolerance I have for Jesse's big feelings, that's my daughter. And I think what I've noticed is there are a lot of sort of modern parenting practices that really go aren't helpful for what you're saying. You know, there's, I don't know if you have it, but we have something where some parenting authors will say, if you don't like a behavior, turn your back on the child, shutting down crying, saying, you know, don't cry, there's nothing to cry about, you know, all these shaming behaviors. And I think it's just unconscious. I think people just aren't realizing the impact of that. But for me, that's... Um, yeah, well, now we know why they need medication. <laughs> well, yeah, and I feel really passionately about this. You know, I let... It's true. Well, because here's the thing, right? Look at like a child when you're playing peekaboo with them, right? When you cover your face, they get kind of scared. Turning away from somebody is disconnection. And if you're turning away from somebody when they're sad, that is where worthiness disappears right there. Yeah. I hope there might be some people listening who are doing that who might change it as a result of this conversation. That would be amazing. And again, I think it's really important for us both to keep emphasizing this isn't about shaming anyone's how they're doing it currently, but trying to bring this cutting edge. And this is cutting edge, Mastin, isn't it? This isn't in a lot of the parenting books, certainly none of the ones that I've seen other than Shafali's. So, you know, this is new stuff. But I think it's really important that we get this out to the mothers and the parents and the caregivers, because it's really, really vital. Otherwise, we're going to end up with another generation of highly anxious, depressed, unresolved trauma. And we, right. we can't have that. That's not your That's vision right. for the and world. It, it's not my vision. Not at all. And it's a hard thing to be a transitional character. But it's also, if you think about it, it's an honor to do that work. And so I just want to say for you and for everyone listening, like it is an honor to witness that journey. And the struggle is nothing short of epic and heroic. And it's a big deal. And I totally agree with you. Just make sure for everyone who's listening to have a lot of compassion for yourself because this is something that's been going on forever. Trying to stop it with you is like trying to turn the Titanic around. So be patient, be calm, and be kind to yourself. It's really hard, but it's really worth it. Yeah, I mean, well, that's why people listen to this podcast is I know that everyone listening is here because they want to heal and they want to reconnect to themselves and do it differently the next time. So you know, I know they would have taken a lot from this conversation. So thank you. 
I ask the same question to every guest at the end. And that question is, Mastin, if you could give one gift to all the mothers in the whole world, what would that be and why? I think that would be whatever they need to be able to be emotionally and physically in tune with their child, whether that's support, encouragement, to set that example would be huge. And I would also say it's not a specific thing. It's more of a quality to be able to actually be there with them. And the other thing I would say that's sort of in tandem with that is, you know, I'm a six foot five white guy from Kansas. I grew up in the upper middle class and I never knew about privilege. And over 10 years of working in this field with mostly all women, I've really seen how their male privilege, just this expectation that I'm going to be able to do this and make this happen and not even question it is kind of how society is set up for men. From what I've seen, women are their intuition, their creativity, their cooperation, their ability to get things done far surpasses that of men. And I wish they would have that privilege, like they would feel it because, you know, we've had it for a long time, us guys, and, you know, we fucked up the world pretty bad. (laughs) I wonder what it would feel like to have a whole generation of women who felt privileged, like it was no big deal to be president of the United States, to earn a bunch, like it was just normal. To me, that would be just amazing to have that because they have it, like everyone has it. But when society and the system says you don't, it's really easy to believe it. My team is 80% women. Our clients are 95% women. And I am constantly in awe of the brilliance that emerges when they speak up and they take up space and they shine and they share. Like It's such a beautiful thing to witness. So to be able to just have that be like no big deal, to have that privilege, I think would just be so awesome. Well, it starts with this generation of mothers. I think my generation and our daughters – Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And thank you so much for your time. I've really got a lot. I've got a lot out of our chat. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. You're welcome. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about then just tag them in on instagram my bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there people often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends so if that's you then please do i feel like the guests that we have on the podcast their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide so help me make that happen I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.